just, it's literally boring if you just are all just memorizing stuff. I want, I want my classroom to be interactive. I want kids to read something and go, okay, well, what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. What, who agrees? What, did, what does this remind you of? What are you wondering? It's bringing this, and you know, and we, we talk about inquiry-based learning. That's kind of what it is. It's moving beyond that literal content and breathing life into the, into the facts. Hey there, and welcome back to Simbi Foundation's podcast, Impact in the 21st Century, the show that shares stories of positive impact in a world that right now can leave us all feeling a little helpless. Each episode, I speak with incredibly inspiring guests about the positive impact they're making, learning how they discovered their passion, and uncover what they've done to turn vision into action. I also aim to tease out what we can all do to lead more impactful lives, so be sure to stick around. I'm Aaron Friedland, your host of Impact in the 21st Century and founder of Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization that collaborates with the UN to build digital, solar-powered classrooms called Brightboxes to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. If you're returning for another episode, thank you for being part of this community and for taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. You inspire us to keep sharing these impactful stories. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. And if you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the awesome guest list we have lined up for you. And a huge thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. And on the show today, how author and educator extraordinaire Adrian Gear mainstreamed social and emotional learning within the classroom, and now is inspiring students to connect with reading and books like never before. And Adrian, before we jump right in, I'd like to take a moment to share a brief list of your accomplishments to provide some context for our conversation. So you're a classroom teacher with over 20 years of experience, I believe? It's probably closer to 25, a little bit higher, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's true, though. Yes. We won't age you, but sounds make, good. Yeah. Exactly. Um, author of seven books and professional resources for educators. Um, and you also have published quite a few books on uh, on the Simbi platform. And so if we started to count all of those, I think you'd be in the, the 50s to, to hundreds, no? Sure. On the, on the Simbi publisher side, I'm up to at least 50. So. Um, <laughs> and if I understand correctly, your books and your educator resources reach millions of, of, of students each year and have significantly impacted how reading, writing, social, emotional learning, and thinking is taught. Um, And then on top of that, you also have one incredible book list, which I will be sure to share in the description because uh, the gear picks, as they are called, are some incredible books, which uh, a lot of teachers really, really use to inform their their class reading list, right? Yeah, teachers are quite, quite drawn to, you know, when is, when's Adrian's new list coming out? Cause I'm always trying to put in, you know, the best, the best of the best of the, of the books for them to use. So, yeah. Amazing. And, and so I guess I'm just going to jump right in with this. You and I connected three years ago for the first time. And before we met, I had heard your name being thrown around <laughs> in many different circles and, uh, you're, you're definitely a, a teacher celebrity in, in many respects, whether you choose to acknowledge it or not is, is one thing, but you, you truly are. And, and so when you started developing these reading lists and these book lists, what, what actually informed that process? And 
just tell me a little bit about starting to do that and starting to realize that a lot of teachers were actually using them to inform all of their classroom teaching or all of their classroom reading that year. Um, well, I just have always loved books. Like I just, I, I, I was a reader as a child. I grew up in a household where there were books everywhere. And I, I've always loved reading. And so as a, as a teacher, it was always something that I just naturally was drawn to was bringing books into the classroom and using authentic children's literature to sort of support the lessons that I was teaching. And the bottom line is there's a book for everything. <laughs> there's, a, there's actually a book for everything. Whatever you're teaching, there's just always going to be a book that you can use. And so I always, I always sort of found that that books were kind of my my teaching partner. I would I would always there would be you know when you're a beginning teacher you know there's there's times where you know you're not sure how a lesson's going to go and and you're nervous about teaching and those books were always sort of my my security because I knew if I had a book in my hand and I was reading out loud to the class that something magical would happen and so that was always sort of my my belief and and my practice and then as i grew you know started to become connected to other educators and start sharing some of these great book titles people were more and more interested in it because what i didn't realize is not everyone used books in their classroom i i thought everyone did and so when i started to develop reading power um and started to look at ways that we could help support children in their thinking around books, I started putting together the book lists. And then what I realized were that teachers really appreciated having titles um, to draw from because there's thousands of books. And so for those who might not have the background that I had, um, they were so appreciative of having, you know, if I, if I wanna teach this, here are some books to use. So it just kind of grew out of my interest and my passion. But the more I started talking about books, the more I realized teachers really appreciated having, having those lists. And so they kind of took on a life of their own. It's like, it's like every, it's like every season, you know, and now, now publishers, it's crazy. Publishers are sending me books. <laughs> boxes of books to put on my list <laughs> like I just got a box yesterday from a amazing publishing company Canadian publishing company kids can press they're one of the you know they're one of the top five kind of Canadian publishers and it and I knew what was in that box and I I just like I didn't want to open it because I just I, I need a kind of time and space and just like because it's like Christmas to me so then I waited till after supper and it was just like, I, I just needed this, like, so I opened the box and it was just like, I, I, there's something, it's crazy. And then I was picking them all out and, and my husband could hear me because it's so weird for him. I'm just like, oh, I'm making all these excited sounds about these books and looking through them and putting them into piles already. Because when I look at a book, I'll think, oh, this is you know, and I start sorting them in my mind. How, how long into your teaching career did you actually, when did you start writing your first books? 
So I probably, so Reading Power came out, the first edition of Reading Power was 15 years, not 15 years ago, the book, but about 15 years. So halfway into my teaching career, I started to develop this idea around comprehension instruction and, um, and then using children's literature to support that practice. And it wasn't, it, the interesting thing when I look back, it wasn't like I woke up one morning and thought, I'm gonna write a book. I'm gonna be, you know, this person who travels around and talks about education. It was never like that. It was, I started doing something in my school that started to work around helping kids become better readers and thinkers. And then I went to a meeting and I talked about it. And then someone said, oh, why don't you come and tell us our staff about it? And it just kind of, it grew out of, um, you know, just an interest among teachers, you know, how, how are some ways that we can support our, our readers? And then I started giving workshops. And then I thought, well, if I wrote a book, and I wouldn't have to talk about it so much. People could just read the book and I wouldn't have to keep giving workshops, but it actually worked the opposite way, which is fine. Um, I ended up writing a book and then it kind of got bigger. So it, it was, it's an interesting, you know, process the way the book kind of unfolded. And then, and then now when I'm writing, um, I get an idea in my head and it starts swirling around up there. And in order for me, and it takes up a lot of real estate in my brain. <laughs> and in order for me to kind of declutter, I have to write. So it's a process of getting an idea and then getting the idea out. And so you, you go through this process, you, you've been teaching for you know 12 to 15 years. And then through that process, you start to, to gain a lot of confidence and clarity. And you start essentially developing the reading power framework and idea. And, you know, fast forward to, to today, you've got seven books and educator resources out there that are influencing literally millions of students each year. Uh, the ideas that you gained and the, idea, the, the thoughts that were swirling around in your mind <laughs> and that are now on paper, um, have significant, significant impact. I mean, that was one of the reasons I was so excited to speak to you about this. And through that journey, was has have there been points where you wonder, where, where you get a little bit of imposter syndrome and you wonder, you know, are my ideas worth or worthy enough to be influencing and inspiring this many people? Was there any period or transition where you're thinking, I'm, I'm just a teacher, how can I be influencing so many people? Absolutely. I, I still, I still feel that I still feel that, um, that, you know, we all talk about that imposter syndrome, but that really started hitting me just at the time when I was thinking about the second book, because it was strange to have, a, you know, a following of teachers that were looking at my work and saying, hey, this will work for me. But what I realized through that process and through the writing of more books is 
that's the biggest compliment I could ever have that a teacher or an educator can listen to my ideas and say, I, I can do that. I can do that too. Um, and that's to me, the, the, the beauty of being in the position that I'm in is that um, my ideas aren't, um, they're not rocket science. I mean, that's the thing. Like I, I, I don't feel like my ideas are coming out of like a grand, you know, very complicated or complex system. It's more the opposite. It's the simplifying of very, um, you know, very complex ideas, mm -hmm. for example, like metacognition and comprehension and, and social emotional learners. There's some complexity in there. But it's the simplifying of those, the big ideas and the big concepts, putting it into child-friendly language that I think is the grab that, the, that teachers seem to be drawn to. And so I, for me, that's, that's where I feel like I can have a big impact. If I remember, um, I remember going to a conference this was many years ago and I was I was listening to the presenter and I was listening to her and I was thinking wow this person is so incredibly brilliant like so brilliant so smart but as I was listening to her I was thinking that she she lives in a different plane Mm -hmm. And while there's, uh, you know, such admiration for that, it sometimes was hard for me as I was listening to put it into practical terms. Like she was, she was up in this echelon of, of complex thinking and I was so um, in awe of her, but, um, but my my colleague was sitting beside me and, and she leaned over and she goes, wow, like she's so, so smart, but I can't really understand what she means in terms of classroom practice. She goes, that's why I like you, Adrian. You're not that smart, but man, you make it simple. And she wasn't, she didn't mean it like that. She didn't mean I wasn't smart, but it's just, it, it's, it's a different approach. And it's about the simplifying of complex ideas that I think um, that's what I feel like I, I can bring. And once I, once I discovered that, that that's books and, and simplifying concepts, and you put those together, and I think that's, that's the draw, I think. Right. I mean, when I think about the number of teachers that just love you and think about you as, as, as really a leader in, in so many respects. Um, it makes me think of a conversation that I had with, um, with the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson recently, where he's talking about how people who, who really understand, though they are the people who, who will break down information in a way that, that laymen can understand it and can, can value and, and derive value from it. And he talks about this concept where he will watch TV shows and he will watch movies that 
are just current and just popular so that he can stay current and so that he doesn't only live up here and so that yes. he's relatable and approachable. And one of the things that I think you've done, a, a parallel that I draw that I think you've done really beautifully, and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, um, is, is remaining a classroom teacher. And so when I think about a lot of people in your, who have followed similar trajectories to you, they start off as teachers or in, in whatever field they are in. And as they kind of climb the social hierarchy with their books or movies or anything in between, the thing that they used to do, they start doing much less of and they fall more into the limelight. And you've maintained, I think it's two days a week working at Sex Smith Elementary School. Was that intentional? Uh, so, yeah, so yes, it's very. it was very intentional. I think going back to that conference I was talking to you about and listening to this amazing woman, um, I did have a thought in my head, like when was the last time you were in a classroom? Because it was hard to relate to what she was talking about. And it was hard to find practical ideas that I wanted to take back and be able to use. And there, and as you said, there are often people who are kind of on the circuit in education who go around and, and do what I do, um, but they are quite removed from classroom practice. And I always felt I wanted to remain grounded because I wanted to be able to relate to what teachers were dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so those, those um, connections to kids, and, and bottom line is, Erin, I love teaching. That, that, that's why I stay connected because I am my most comfortable self in front of kids and talking to a group of children. And so to lose that would be, you know, losing a part of me. So yes, I can, you know, talk to a group of educators, but my heart is with kids. And so I think that's why I stay grounded with, with classroom practice. But I do think that in the end, it's what draws teachers to my work is because it's very, very practical. The lessons that I share with teachers, I have taught. And you know what? I sometimes they bomb. Like we all have lessons that bomb and teachers will be able to relate to that. And, and, and you get stories, like I'm a storyteller. So, you know, you tell the stories of the kids in the classroom and the, you know, hilarious things that they say and the funny things that happen. And also going back to the picture books, like I love to read books to children because they're the testers of these 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 books right uh, they're going to be their reaction is how i know whether a book is worth kind of talking about or sharing so i think it's it's both keeping credible but also just because i love because i love it <laughs> and, and so one of the one of the ideas we were talking about earlier is how teachers really do love your work and I mean, you and I know this from whether it's working together with Simbi or, or our own individual work. Teachers really speak. They really talk to each other. It's amazing how quickly good books, good ideas, um, bad books, Absolutely. bad ideas are, yes. are well known. And, and so I think it's so, you know, if I put myself in your position and I'm thinking about have I, have I learned enough to, to justify or to warrant 
writing information down that should be teaching yeah. and inspiring other people, just knowing how honest um, educators are, teachers are, and knowing that if, the, if it resonates with them and they're sharing it, it's a really good litmus test. It means that you're doing something that works. And I guess that would be enough validation to, to keep doing it, right? Absolutely. So yeah, the, the fact that the lessons that I'm teaching to educators are lessons that I've taught children. Um, it is, it's the litmus test. And, and, and there's that, you know, as the older that I get, this is, this is what I say to educators in, in workshops, but it's true. The older I get, the, the more quickly I get irritated. <laughs> and, and in classrooms, I mean, let's face it, I love children, but they can be irritating sometimes. And so one of the things that irritates me most is after I've taught a lesson, you know, I've taught a lesson, you put all this effort into explaining it, and then you send the children off to do the work and half of them come back and say, I don't, what are we doing? I don't understand, what are we supposed to do? And that happened to me as a beginning teacher. And I would think to myself like, how could you not know what to do? I have just finished explaining it to you. But what I realized in that disconnect between my lesson and the children, and the first thing that happens, of course, is you blame them. Because whenever things, things don't go right in the classroom, it's never your fault. It's always the kid's fault. It's like those kids, like, are they not listening? But the bottom line was, in my experience, the reason I had so many children coming up to me after my lesson and saying, I don't get it, was that my lessons were bad. <laughs> like They were not good. I wasn't clear. It was clarity. It was simplifying. And so often we assume children just get it. But over the years, I've realized like they don't all get it. And so what as a, as a teacher, what I'm striving always to do is setting my students up for success. That's the most important thing. I want them to go back and be able to right away know exactly what to do and to do it well and to feel good about themselves. And in order for that to happen, I need to break things down and make it really, really simple. And in that process, when I do that with children and then I show educators how I've done that, it's like a little light bulb goes on for them and they go, oh yeah, maybe I need to just slow down, break it down, simplify it, and then I won't get irritated <laughs> as much. <laughs> well, I can't tell you how many times I've benefited from that same approach as it relates to just the corporate world as well, right? I mean, one, one thing that really stands out to me is you and I were sipping a, a JJ Bean coffee in Olympic Village. We're going back a couple of years. And we're talking about some of your books. We're talking about uh, what was then your latest book, Powerful Understanding. And I, I asked you, I was like, give me, give me some examples from, from the book. Just, just some areas that really resonated with you. And you teach me about the, the social footprint concept. And am, am I using the term correctly? The so yeah, yeah, yeah. Social footprint. <laughs> and 
what you explained to me is the way that you teach this book or this concept is that you, you help kids understand that when they are interacting with someone um, in the same way that after you walk somewhere and you leave a footprint, after you've interacted with someone, you also leave like a, a social footprint and how you make that person feel, if you make them feel happier or, or sad about themselves, that's all part of this, that's all encompassed in the social footprint. And I mean, I remember after you explained that to me, I, I thought to myself, I cannot believe how brilliant this concept is. And not only that, but this should be taught to MBAs and executives. This isn't only a concept that applies to, to, to elementary school children. And you know, now we're talking about the way that you break down concepts. And quite often in, at Symbian, I'll explain what that is in just a moment, but you and I will have a conversation about something. And then afterwards you'll say, Aaron, I don't, I don't think it's crystal clear the, the way that we've explained this concept or this idea. And I think it's your ability to, I think it's your many years of experience teaching and helping making sure that people understand what you're saying that has made you such a master at this, hey? What, what well, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm a master at it, but I, it, it is, and, and I'm gonna go back to, you know, I'm gonna go keep going back that thread of going back to that conference where I was listening to this woman and I was going, why can I not understand her, but I could, but I couldn't put it into practical, right? Like, how do you take these big concepts and, and important, you know, but, but often abstract mm -hmm. and put it into simple terms for, for children? And I use a, a lot of analogies too, you know, like when we're talking about, you know, word choice in writing, and I call that a triple scoop word. Because, you know, you go to ice cream store and you choose, um, you know, you're lining up and you're ready to order your triple scoop word, your, tri your triple scoop ice cream with your waffle cone and your cotton candy and your bubble gum. And, and you get to the front of the line and your grandma orders you a kitty cone. And so you're stuck with a little cone and the half a lump of ice cream. And you say, thank you, but you're wishing you had triple scoop and then I say to the kids that's how I feel when I read your writing because I want triple scoop words and you're giving me little lumps of ice cream <laughs> little lump words and 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 it's so funny because when I say that to teachers they all laugh because all teachers know the words that children use over and over and over again that I call single scoop kitty cone words good nice, fun, like these words, they're boring words. But, but the idea is if we don't give kids those kind of concepts and that encouragement, like I want the triple scoop words, don't give me the kitty cone words, all of a sudden it puts it into a frame that they can relate to. And I think that's kind of one of the things that I always try to do is put it into terms that, <clears throat> the kids can kind of understand better. So I don't know how that happens for me. I just like to, I like everyone to understand it. And I need to understand it super clearly myself. Like I need to understand something like when, when you and I are talking and I'll say, I don't, I don't, this isn't clear to me. So it's about that breakdown. 
Well, you do it beautifully. You have described yourself and you've been described as obsessed with children's literature. And I'm wondering, what is it about children's literature and books that you love? Well, I, I think, as I mentioned before, I feel like they, they are my teaching companion and that there's basically a book for everything. But, but there is something magical that happens when you have a group of children around you and you're reading them a, a great book. Um, th there's, there's this incredible interaction that happens and an incredible richness and, and um, connection that happens when you have reached them in some way. And whether we're laughing together or whether we're having deep discussions about homelessness or global warming or something, books, books are my connection. They're my way in. They're my access point to reaching all the students. And, and I, I think it's, a, it, it's, it's something incredible that happens in a classroom with a great book in your hand. And, and I say that to, to teachers, I, no matter what grade you teach, read out loud to your kids every day. It is that, it is that connection that you, it, it's an interesting kind of experience because I call it interactive because you're interacting with the book, but also you're interacting with the students. And it's that it's that relationship that you have with with like the book, the kids, and and you coming together. And and it it is it's a it's a it's a magical experience. And so I'm always it's almost like that you know you you crave it. You crave the that the moments those moments in your classroom where you're having those discussions and when you're having those you know, making those connections. And um, it's the book that always draws me into those moments. Um, they, they become, um, yeah, a, a, such an important part of how I teach. But I've and always loved books. I mean, as I, I mentioned before, like I grew up in a house of, of, of books, right? I mean, there were books everywhere. And my dad was, you know, he loved poetry and he, he loved the classic writers and, and so I, I, I did, I was fortunate enough to grow up surrounded by, by literature. And so that passion, you know, just stayed with me. And, you know, I described that, you know, the box of books, it's like, literally, I walk into a bookstore and like my heart starts beating faster. And I just, I, I get like, I just, I want, and I, I kind of go and I sort of like touch the covers. My husband doesn't like going into a bookstore with me because I just get this. And then I walk into the children's section and I'm just like, I'm breathing it all in. Like, it's weird. It's just weird. <laughs> but I, I do love, I just love it. There's something, um, yeah, there's just something about them. Do you, when you think about reading out loud, do you read out loud to all of your students in all classes, regardless of the age? Regardless oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm always saying that to, to, to educators, like there's 
there's a misconception that that you know you you stop reading aloud to kids when they're you know get to be around in grade three or four because they're going to be reading you know independently and they they know how to read now so they're just left to their own to read silently and um that read aloud experience listening to a voice read a story i mean it is it is a, a remarkable kind of interaction that happens like i still remember my grade six teacher reading novels out loud to us like i still i remember the book so clearly um and i just it was my favorite time of the day when we would just sit in the desk and she would she would read and my own two children i read out loud to them even like into high school i would be reading out loud so there is some there is something about that that those and i love I love to be read too. Now, no one's reading to me, but like the audio, like why are audiobooks so popular? Mm -hmm. Why are they so popular now? And and it's because, um, you know, when some people say, well, I don't have time to, you know, be reading, holding a book, and so I can multitask, which is great. But story, story connects us. Mm -hmm. Our lives are stories, right? And so, we, we listen to someone else's story and, 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 and that connection happens. Like that's, that's, that's what, to me, that, that connection to the voice of someone else is, is amazing. Do you have any concern that we, that, that audiobooks become increasingly popular and kids start listening to more audiobooks, but start lacking the, the, the visual exposure to seeing the words and just become really good listeners, but but aren't as good at as they would be at uh, decoding. Well, so no, I don't. I don't worry about that. I, I actually feel like the audio books. So okay, now I'm going to do a little. Now I'm going to do a little reading lesson. <laughs> so now I'm going to kind of explain like how readers read. Um, so there's there's two things that go on when when a child is learning how to read. I think you're you're maybe going to ask me this question, but I'm going to answer it before you <laughs> before you've asked it. <laughs> um, so when a child is learning to read, two things are happening. One is they're learning to decode. So basically, um, when you know children in kindergarten and grade one, they learn all their letters, right? They learn their alphabet. And then they learn when letters go together, that makes a word. And then words together make a sentence and sentence. And so there's a scaffolding and a hierarchy of skills that enable them at a, some point in their development to be able to read the words on the page. That's decoding. But the other part of being a reader is the comprehension and the understanding of those words. So teachers spend a significant amount of time in early primary grades. If you teach grade one, um, you're spending an enormous um, instructional time on the code of language, like teaching kids how to read. But what I noticed, you know, and this is kind of how our reading power developed, children who acquire and master code 
are not necessarily mastering the other part of reading, which is the comprehension. And why is that? Is because we're not teaching it as in, in the same kind of, you know, I, I believe in the same importance of the same value and the same instructional time as early primary teachers do in, in grade one and two. Mm -hmm. We assume that once children master code, that they are comprehending. And many do, but many don't. And so we know that because children read through, I mean, we call the secret sort of the teacher uh, lingo for this is master decoders. Mm -hmm. Kids who've mastered code, they can read through two or three pages, but they're not connecting at all. They're not, in, they're not engaged in the text. They're just reading words. And so those children have missed this really important part of the reading process, which is what's going on in your head. How are you making sense of this? So when I'm talking to children about reading, I talk about that and I, I refer to it as book reading and brain reading. And when we're becoming readers, we need to be thinking about both. Book reading is being able to read the words in the book. Brain reading is thinking about what that, those words mean. And so as educators, we need to make sure that in our classrooms, we're equally dividing our instructional time in teaching reading between the code and the comprehension. What was really interesting uh, is as a beginning teacher, as a, you know, a teacher who just started teaching, I, I started teaching, my first class was grade five. And I really thought, this was my thought, oh, so great that I'm teaching grade five because I don't have to teach them how to read. They already come to my class. Thank goodness for primary teachers. They come to my class. They already know how to read. So I can just do reading, but I don't have to teach reading. And there lies the biggest misconception about reading instruction ever <laughs> that no matter what grade you teach you need to be constantly providing instruction in reading skills and if children have already mastered code we need to ensure that the comprehension is at that same level okay so this is a long roundabout answer to your question about audiobooks so here's, here's why I think that audiobooks have such value to, 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 to everyone when we think about children learning to read. So what, what happens sometimes when children struggle with code? So children, and, and I know a little bit of background about you, and I know that you were a, a child who as a beginning reader struggled with code. Not all kids can decode. Mm -hmm. some, some children have a hard time with, with words on the page. So their book reading is, is limited. And it's interesting how sometimes as educators and as parents, we fixate on the lack of decoding skills. And we say, oh, Aaron, 
is a struggling leader. But Aaron is actually not a struggling leader. Aaron is a struggling decoder. And if you're a struggling decoder, this is so important. Struggling decoders are not necessarily struggling thinkers. And in fact, many children who struggle with code have a lot of great comprehension going on, but they're burdened by the text. They're burdened by the passage in front of them. They can't, they can't get at the brain reading because they're struggling with the book reading. Mm -hmm. And so what I've seen so often in classrooms is children who struggle with the code aren't given opportunities to really fine tune and to put into practice their brain reading because they're so stuck on the code. So now that again, this is a long answer to your question. Why are audiobooks great? Audiobooks are great because they remove the burden of the code from the student, from the child, so that for a few short minutes, they can focus on their brain reading and they don't have to be burdened. Not that code is a burden, but for some kids, it's hard for them. So all of a sudden, there's their way in. There is the pathway into the text. Someone's reading it for them. Someone's reading it to them. So it gives them that, that opportunity to, to, to comprehend, to make connections and to bring themselves into text that normally if they were left to the code, they wouldn't, does that kind of make sense? It, like it makes what total I'm, sense. And so are you, are you saying that not only do you want students to have the opportunity to, to brain read, but also that if they have that, they can develop a, a love and a passion from, from the behavior of just enjoying that experience. Is, is that what you're kind of alluding to? Yeah, so, so, so what happens to kids who struggle with code is they're not, they, they lose the joy of reading. The joy of reading, the pleasure of reading comes from the connections you make, comes from the, the brain reading, really. Um, reading words alone, like I'm, I'm just thinking like if somebody passed me um, a page of French text, I would be able to decode it probably. I could read it out loud, but I would have no connection to it at all because I wouldn't know really what it said. Mm -hmm. So therefore it's a very passive experience. I am not connecting at all with that information because all I've done is read words but I haven't been able to bring anything of myself to the text. So, but that's what happens with some children sometimes. If they're reading words and they're only reading words, they miss the connection and the engagement in text. And that's what, that's the joy of reading is when you're reading a book and you're connecting to it, or when you're, when you're laughing about something that happened because it reminds you of something that happened to you and, and that, in, that intimate experience when you become part of the story. Children who struggle with code, 
they they haven't been able to to experience that and so reading to them is 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 not enjoyable it's a burden because they're just they've got all these words in front of them they, they can't read them so to give them the opportunity of brain reading with an audio book mm-hmm. and i'm not saying that it's going to replace that that's not what i'm saying i'm i'm not saying that if you have audiobooks you don't ever have to learn how to read the words but it's just to me if i can if i can dangle the carrot of this is what reading feels like this this what you feel when you're listening to a story being read to you mm-hmm. that's what's going to happen when you become better at the code so it's just giving children the pleasure the the, the real pleasure of reading um and i think you can you can achieve that by having someone read out loud, whether or not that's your parent reading to you, your teacher reading to you, or an audiobook reading to you. I'm fully with you. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I wanted you on the show today. Uh, you know, when I think about not just the reading out loud, but the fact that what you are constantly thinking about, or one of the many things is, how do I motivate and how do I inspire kids to love reading? How, how do I provide the, the tools and the resources to teachers to help more kids love reading? And I know that you and I feel similarly where when we can get kids to, be, to love reading and put them on that path to be lifelong learners, we don't vote in terrible people into, into politics, right? I mean, <laughs> there are so many positive spillover effects from a literate society that are passionate readers. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and just, I, because I love reading so much, I want them, I want all the students that I teach to love reading too. Mm-hmm. And so that's always my motivation is uh, how do I get them to love to read? And, and it's by teaching them, by giving them the skills that will help them be successful, but also giving them the amazing books that will just, you know, draw them in. So in this increasingly, you know, digital and distraction-based world, um, where we are seeing, for example, higher income countries like the US having increasing tendencies toward declining literacy, we're seeing more fourth grade students than ever before not reading at grade level. What what sort of things, what, what excites you about the opportunity now? What sort of things can we be doing to, to change this, this tendency and to change the trajectory that we're on? Well, I think that there's pockets of, of change happening. I know that in British Columbia, um, where I'm, you know, teaching and, you know, in, and across Canada, there is a slow shift. I think that that's starting to happen in education, which I believe is is where we need to head. Because I think what happens when when you know we talk about illiterate society and we talk about you know that there's so many kids that aren't are not reading and are not, we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, well, well, why? What are we doing or not doing mm-hmm. to 
to engage engage our our young people in into books and text and reading and and I think it comes down to our our approach. So the, the shift I think that's been happening over the last you know five to ten years happened I think in education because of I mean I you know I'm being really simple here but um, because of the internet. So what happened when the internet came out into, into our into our world is educators had to change the way they thought about delivering their education. We came from and, and I grew up in a very knowledge based content based world of education. Right. A teacher's job was to stand in front of the, the page on the stage stand and deliver the content. And our job as students was to take all that information in, memorize it and regurgitate it back. That's how I learned. That's how I literally learned in school. I, I memorized and I regurgitated because that was how education, and, and that's not the, the fault of the teacher. That was just how education worked. The teacher knew more than we did. They gave us the knowledge, the, the content about ancient Egypt or life cycles of beetles or whatever it was we were learning. And then our job was to memorize that. And then we would get a test. You know, remember the hundred point multiple choice tests mm -hmm. and you would memorize for, uh, and then you would, you know, get your mark or whatever. I grew up going to elementary school, high school, and university with that approach to education. Here's the facts. This is what you need to learn. And then we need to know whether or not you've understood it. So we're going to give you 100 multiple choice questions. What happened when the inter... Oh, and, and I'm going to tell you a story. Because I still remember university first year. I went to University of British Columbia and first year midterms. Okay, so remember right around, around November, end of October, November, we have like five midterms and it's overwhelming. And, you know, how do you prepare? You buy recipe cards. This is what I did. And I basically wrote in teeny tiny printing, everything from the September 1st to then, on recipe cards and you stay up all night. Did you do that? You Sounds stay up all night memorizing all those recipe cards. And then you walk into the exam and your brain is like on steroids with all those facts. And then you spew them all out onto the exam paper, all the multiple choice, the little computer generated, whatever. And you do pretty good on the exam. You kind of almost knew that you did okay on the exam because you, you know, you had at least 80% of the questions you knew. And then you go and meet your friends for a beer because your first midterm is done. And you got one down, four to go. I, I remember this so well. So we met at a place called the pit, which was the drinking hole at the university. And we were sitting around. And I remember my girlfriend saying to me, 
what was your exam on? Because we're just talking about our exam. What was your exam on, Adrian? And I went, honestly, I have no clue. Cheers. And, but, but so, yeah, we laugh at that. Everyone's experienced it. But why is that? How is that possible? I am 21 years old. I am in a university and I can get 90% on an exam and not have any clue what I did. How was that possible? Why is it possible? It's, po it's possible because no one taught me because it wasn't the way of the world and it wasn't the way of education. No one taught me to think. No one asked me to put in my questions, my connections, my inferences, my synthesis. No one was teaching me how to make sense of that information. It was all literal, mm -hmm. a knowledge-based literal education system that was, you know, that's the brick and mortar kind of school. Internet comes along. I'm simplifying this so well. Internet comes along and all of a sudden, kids don't need us anymore. They don't, they don't need teachers anymore. They have every single fact that they could ever want with a click and a swipe and whatever. So all of a sudden, education was kind of at this crossroads because educators needed to find a different way to figure out like, what are we doing? Okay, kids don't need us for content anymore because they got the content in front of them. Mm -hmm. So this is where I think the shift has kind of out of necessity, we had to figure out a different way to teach. So what are we teaching? It's not what to think, it's how to think. What do you do with all that information? How do you make sense of it? How do you bring yourself into that knowledge? And, and, and why, why is there so much like the illiteracies and, and the kids not reading and all of this? This is why I think what's happening is that not everyone has figured that out. Not everyone has figured out that we need to change the way we're, we're approaching learning in schools. Because kids don't, we, we've got to teach them something beyond just facts. And so what we want to do is we want to teach them how to be thinkers of knowledge, not just memorizers of knowledge, right? Not just regurgitators of knowledge. And there lies the, to me, um, when we, when we teach kids to be critical thinkers, mm -hmm. when we teach kids to question information, to teach kids how to make sense and make connections, that's what brings value and interest and passion into learning. And without that, if you're still stuck in that, and unfortunately there are places that are very data-driven, test results, uh, what is the scores and, you know, but, but learning shouldn't be a chore for a score. 
I like little rhymes, and so there's one for you. I, I don't, I don't, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It reading should not be a chore for a score. You've got to bring life, breathe life into learning. And that's what's going to make, to me, uh, education, the education of our young people. Uh, that's what's going to inspire them to be lifelong learners. Because right. just memorizing facts is not, is not, is boring. It's, it's literally boring. If you just are all just memorizing stuff. I want, I want my classroom to be interactive. I want kids to read something and go, okay, well, what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. what, who agrees? What, is, what does this remind you of? What are you wondering? It's bringing this, and you know, and we we talk about inquiry-based learning. That's kind of what it is. It's moving beyond that literal content and breathing life into the into the facts. Right. So, Adrian, we're talking right now about you know making meaning in the classroom, interactive classrooms, and the benefits of reading out loud. And actually, just as an aside, I also remember my grade six teacher reading out loud to me. And that's one of my fondest memories from grade six. Even though I didn't love my teacher, I, I just really <laughs> fondly loved when, when she would read. We were reading this book about illegal chocolate and the illegal chocolate trade in Canada. And it was this. Oh, wow. Anyways, I still remember that. So the point being, I'm fully with you on the the memory associated with, with reading out loud. And all of that actually drew us to work together. And so we've been working together for the last, I guess, three years. And I'd love to understand from your perspective, what actually drew you to working with Simbi and uh, yeah, the, the process of it. Well, I think, you know, Simbi represents two things that I'm very passionate about. One, of course, is reading. And the other is the the global impact piece. And um, I think when we met, I had just finished my, my book, Powerful Understanding, which is really all about this um, in, inquiry-based bringing children's voices and their reflections into the classroom, but also really looking at ways that we can support uh, children's social emotional learning and that, um, you know, technology, you know, in some respects has, has taken away some of the, the personal interaction that children have because they're focused on, you know, a screen, they're not necessarily interacting with each other. And sadly for, you know, middle school children, um, their identity, their identities are impacted significantly more by social media. You know, their, their identity is based on how many likes they have. Um, and that's, that, that's sad. And so one of the things that I was looking at in, in, in my book is how do we help children become um, more, more confident and positive in their own self-image, just within themselves. And then, and then what, what you were talking about um, earlier was this idea of social footprint and how once we have a strong self-identity, self, self, um, self -identity, how does that then 
work to interact with others and how my, my actions are impacting others and this idea of action reaction, that we have choices in how we act with other people and, and that can either have a positive or negative impact. But then thirdly, so we've got self, others, and then thirdly, what's really, really important for me, because the world is so connected now, um, how as a, as a young person in the world, do I develop a sense of responsibility that I'm a member of the global community? And as a member of the global community, I can't just be taking, I have to be giving. And how do we help support our young people to be givers, to have a global impact. Um, and so all of those kind of concepts uh, were really important for me to develop as, you know, as a resource. So that book came out, it was in the forefront of my mind, and then you and I met. And all of a sudden, I saw you as representing both the reading component, because Simbi is a reading platform, but this idea of global impact, because Simbi is all about reaching others through your your reading and through your voice. And to me, I couldn't, I couldn't even believe that there was something out there, and there was someone you um, who who combined both of those things. And it felt like, you know, this, that we were meant to kind of connect because everything about what you talked about, I was so passionate about. And I just thought, this is incredible. This is an incredible concept that you can bring a reading platform. And, and you know, to be honest, when I didn't know too much about Simbi, I didn't understand the global impact part. And you were just talking about you're developing this reading platform. In my mind, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a million reading platforms. There's Epic, there's Raskit. I mean, you know, there's a lot of reading platforms and that's not bad, but it's like, I don't have time to work for, to support, not that I don't support, but you know, it's just, they're a dime a dozen. But then when you started talking about the, the global impact of the reading platform, that was like, I am all in because this is the most remarkable marriage of, of two very, very important and prolific concepts, improving reading skills while simultaneously supporting global literacy. Like, Oh, it was like, it's, no, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that you came up with a way to bring both together. And so I get like almost teary thinking about it. It's so beautiful. It is, it is, it's a beautiful thing. And so that's why I got excited about the Symbi team is because I believe in it. And, and I am, as you know, you've discovered, I am not a tech wizard. No. I'm not a tech wizard by any stretch. So to be connected to like a tech, a tech 
and a reading platform that's based on like anything to do with computers is kind of a stretch. But, but my passion for the concepts to me is I felt like what I could bring, right, to help, to support. So don't ask me anything tech, but ask me about reading and ask me about global impact. I'm all in. And here's one thing that I, I, I realized as I wrote my book, Powerful Understanding, and I started to investigate and explore this notion of elementary teachers and students, because that's kind of my area, helping them see themselves as global citizens. And when you're seven years old, it's a hard concept for young children to understand that they are members of a global society and they have a responsibility in that they can't just be uh, people in the world who consume and take and they have to give back. But when you're seven, it's hard to find actual practical meaningful ways to give back. So how, how previously to meeting you and understanding about the Simbi and the connection with global impact, what could I do in my classroom, literally, to help kids feel like global citizens? We can visit uh, seniors' homes. That's a bit more of a community, but still I'm giving back. Um, I can also uh, give uh, my time to maybe do a garbage pickup on the beach. We can bring our class down and we can, you know, help. But there are few opportunities for children to be making a global impact. So that's what so excited me about Simbi and about the work you were doing, because it enabled me as a classroom teacher to bring in a reading platform where children are reading and narrating stories. So A, they're, they're engaged in reading, they're on a platform they're very comfortable and, and like drawn to, right? So they're on, on their laptop or on their iPad. So they're reading, they're improving their reading skills, but have the opportunity to use their narrated voice to support readers in other countries who are learning to read. Like it is the most remarkable um, platform to me. And so it, it wasn't like, how, how, how could I become part of Simbi when I had my own, you know, I was so busy. My question, how could I not? <laughs> How could I not be part of Cindy? Because it's everything I believe that we should be doing with our kids. And so it's the reading and the global impact. And, and, I, I, and the one thing I love about that I've seen kids get really excited about well, two things about watching kids on Cindy. One is listening back to their own voice. That, a really incredible tool to be able to read out loud, record, but then listen back. Lots of kids don't 
get an opportunity to hear their own recording. I mean, they might see themselves on a, you know, they're using their iPhone or whatever, but to just hear their voice feedback is really an interesting thing. So I've seen them get really excited and also excited to improve their readings. Like if they make a mistake on a page, the fact that they can delete and go back and re-listen and, and re-record, it's kind of a, a neat feature. But the other is when they get their impact report. So I don't know if the people on uh, that are listening know what an impact report is, but as you read on Simbi, your recorded voice goes into the global library and gets distributed and, and used um, by other readers. Once a week, um, Simbi sends an impact report, which literally lists all the countries around the world where your story has been listened to. And it is such a motivator for kids to see that they have reached around the world, that they're having, they're making an impact on, on literacy. It's, it's the most exciting thing. So those are the reasons why I'm connected and, and you're never going to get rid of me. <laughs> One of the reasons that I feel so lucky to be working with you, and one of the one of the things that I, I really I truly admire about you, is how you consistently are optimizing and consistently are are looking at things and saying, you know, how, can can we make this better? Can we teach this better? And then you combine that with your insane ability to create these connections and to to make these ideas. And what ends up happening is our brainstorming sessions are just really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> The, the, just some of my favorite days are just spent thinking about how do we motivate kids to love reading more? What, what, what can we do to make it better? So I feel very lucky to, to be working with you on that. Now, I have one more question for you. Actually, I have two more questions for you. Okay. What are brain pockets? <laughs> Brains are just another visual. I think one of the other things about me and the way I teach is I and I think you're like this too is I'm a very visual learner so I kind of need to see concepts um, as tangibles rather than abstracts and so um, brain pockets are um, the way that I describe how our brains think so when I'm talking to kids about reading and writing in fact but when I'm talking about reading um, one of the things that I will say to students, you know, when you're when you're reading and you're trying to make sense of, of the story, one of the ways that we can make sense of the story and think about it, use our, our brain reading, is to make a connection. Um, and making a connection means that we're reading the book and as we're reading it, we're thinking, oh, this reminds me of something else like this reminds me of my brother or this reminds me of a place that I've gone to you know for the summer holiday and those connections as soon as you start connecting to the story it brings understanding it you're bringing yourself into the text but the question we ask students I want to dive a little deeper is where are our connections coming from like where do they come from and so we think about our brains, right? Our connections are coming from our brains, but what, it, what is it in our brains that we're connecting with? 
So I, if you visualize a brain, so I'll draw a picture of a brain. So you think about your brain as being um, the source for your, you know, all the actions and, and thoughts in your body. It's not a very small body part and we can't see it, but it's vital to our, our existence. Brains are the storage place for thought. All of our thinking, if you really, you know, like that's kind of an amazing concept that thought is stored in one place of our body, in our bodies. We don't have thinking in our fingertips. We don't have thinking on our elbows. Thoughts are held in our brains. And so in order to have um, a sense of what that looks like, I draw a picture of a brain and I say, our brains are very clever. And every single thought in our head, if we had it stored in our brain altogether, it would be super confusing. It would be all mixed up. So our brains help organize our thoughts into three pockets. We have one pocket of our brain that holds memories. It's called our memory pocket. And it's there for experiences. So every time something that we do, we go on a bike ride, we go on a hike, we go swimming, we go to a birthday party, all those thoughts get stored in our memory pocket. And then we have another pocket of our brain that holds information, knowledge, that's called our fact pocket. And all facts that we learn about dinosaurs or <laughs> hockey or life cycles or global warming, all those facts go up there. And our third pocket is our creativity. It's our imagination pocket. And the imagination pocket is where all of our imagination lies, all our creative thoughts. I wish I had a pet unicorn. I, I'm imagining I have a pet. If you teach grade two, you have to get to know unicorns. Grade two, we all want a unicorn. Okay, let's imagine what that would be like. Go into your imagination pocket, find your unicorn. Let's talk about it. So you draw this picture of a brain with three pockets and all of a sudden, this is kind of building metacognition with kids, but all of a sudden our brains become more tangible places for thinking. So now I'm going to go back to that. Where do your connections come from? Your connections come from your brain, but your brain has different pockets. So it depends on what you're reading. So Aaron, if you're reading Harry Potter, most likely you're going to be finding connections in your imagination pocket. If you're reading all about volcanoes, you're probably going to be visiting your fact pocket. If you're reading about two friends who have a big fight and don't speak to each other anymore and then become friends again, you're probably in your memory pocket. So what I help kids do is find their connections in the different pockets. But then what I love about the brain pockets is it works really well for writing. Because I say to the student, where do writers get their ideas for writing? <gasps> Guess what? Writers get their ideas from their brain pockets. Depending on what they want to write, if they want to write facts, they're going into their fact pocket. If they want to write about unicorns, they're going into their imagination pocket. If they want to write about their friend, they're in their memory pocket. So 
those brain pockets have become incredibly helpful resources, tangibles for making, it's just, it's kind of making thinking visible. Does that make sense? Like it's making it more concrete and it's giving it language. So that's brain pockets. But teachers love brain pocket. We do brain pocket writing. So instead, did, did you ever, when you were in school, did you ever have journal writing? You know, you have a little blank notebook and your teacher says, okay, we're gonna write in our journal. Yeah. Did you ever do that? Yeah. But if, if, we, if we really wanna be honest, journal writing is boring. It's boring as anything. It's boring to write, mm -hmm. but then as a teacher, you have to read 26 journals. It's so boring because it's like, what are you writing in your journal? On, mon on Sunday, I went to the park and then I went swimming. It was fun. And then I went to the store and then I it's boring. Mm -hmm. So instead of journal writing, we do brain pocket writing. So kids get to have the little notebook, but instead of doing a journal, they choose a brain pocket memory or fact or information or imagination and then they just write from one of their brain pockets it's great <laughs> teachers love brain pockets i love brain pockets i want to do one of these you want to do a brain pocket writing so so the next the thing the next thing that's so funny is from now on you're always going to be thinking like and i always say okay go to your memory pocket like you always you you start I'm recognizing yeah, you start compartmentalizing that you're you're in a different part of your brain to think. It's and, and cool. factually, are you actually like? Does oh no, this is not scientific at all. Neo, like, to a different frontal oh, cortex or anything. No? I made the whole thing okay. up. I totally made the whole thing up. It's a complete lie. It's not a lie, but I just I tell teachers this is not scientifically based. I do. I say it's not scientifically based at all. I made it up, but it. It's very useful. So Adrian, for, for any teachers watching this and wondering, you know, what can they be doing to, to be best inspiring their students to be passionate lifelong readers? What, what can they be doing right now? What's your utopian day of teaching that is going to be inspiring students to, to read the most books um, and become lifelong readers? Wow, that's, that's a big question, but um, it makes me always go back to this, uh, this quote uh, by Toni Morrison, and I love it. It's, uh, she said, the words on the page are only half the story. The rest is what you bring to the party. And that is such an amazing you know, metaphor, I guess, or analogy of what reading is, because I think back on my own, you know, I talked earlier about how I learned to read and, and learn to learn. Um, no one, no teacher told me about the party. Like, I didn't know there was a party. I just thought whatever was on the page was what I was supposed to know. Mm -hmm. And I didn't ever bring myself into the party with my own thinking. And I think that that to me is what my hope for 
all, all children learning to read, that they understand and they're given that invitation that part of becoming a reader is not only what's in the book, but what you bring into the book mm-hmm. and how you bring your thinking and your experiences and your facts and your imagination and all your brain pockets, how, how those thoughts that you have make the reading experience so much more exciting, enjoyable, pleasurable, joyful. I mean, all of those things that, that, that to me is why some kids don't like reading. They have not been invited to the party, right? They didn't know there was a party. And so I think we all need to just invite, (laughs) invite kids into the party by giving them things to, by, by also teaching them that, that they need to be part of that experience, right? to be reflective, this idea of reflective habits of mind, that if we can start instilling that reflective habits of mind in our classroom, which to me just means reflecting on all of our learning, but in terms of reading, like what did, let's reflect on this story. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's so funny how often, like I think of I don't know if you, you're young, but when I was in school, whenever we read in school, it was always followed by comprehension questions. Do you remember those? It's like, read this and answer 10 questions. Mm-hmm. And I got so good at that. But here's the, here's the problem. Now, it wasn't a problem then. I could get all of the answers right and not read. Did you ever do that? I did it well. I would look at the question Mm -hmm. and then I'd skim through and find the answer and write it in a sentence and get it right. So here I am getting 10 out of 10 and not, not reading the text. Right. That is because the questions that were being asked were all literal. What's the boy's name? The boy's name is John. Uh, how old is he? He's 12 years old. Okay. Those questions are so irrelevant. Who cares what his name is? It says it right there. So don't ask kids what the boy's name is. Ask kids, what connection are you making to him? What thing in his personality is something connected to you? So it, it's just, it's all about that shift. I always say to kids, don't tell me what the book was about. I just read it myself. I don't care what the book was about. Tell me what you're thinking about the book. So it's just come to the party. <laughs> come you know, to the party. It's interesting. So I love that quote. I had never heard it before, but it's oh, it's my me favorite. As I think I think what you really do in your work is essentially provide teachers with the with the tools to be inviting more students to the party. I mean, if I that I ex- were still that's that. ex- well, I love that you said that because that's what I hope I'm doing. Yeah, I. I but, but first of all, first of all, you need to know there is a party, and I think a lot of teachers don't even know 
that there's a party. So free is there. And then, like you said, provide the tools of invitation. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think, you know, also listening to the, the comprehension question component, I remember early on in our days, you turning around and saying, no, no, we're not doing this on the platform. And you as you developed the concept behind, tell me the, the ability for kids to finish reading and start recording their, their tell me asynchronous voice note response. And it, it's just, it's amazing how whether you're developing your books or whether you're building technology, you, you're, you're, you're inviting people to the party. And I never thought about, now, uh, yeah, I love that. I never thought about that being your raison d'etre, but I feel like- I, That's my, like that's my thing. It. That's my jam. I, I love it. <laughs> You're jamming, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I have one last question for you. And that is, you know, I, I think something that really strikes me with you is how humble you are um, with, I, I think you're, you're one of those just, wonderful humans who are so passionate about their work and you don't you don't look for praise you don't I, I don't even think you're really cognizant about how many people are talking about you and just want to be kind of in your orbit and, and around you and it's it's really beautiful but my question is when I think about you know your last 15 years with each subsequent year that goes by the, the, the positive impact that, that Adrian Gear is having on the planet is really growing quite exponentially. Uh, and and when, we, when we think about that, I know that's not the reason you do it, but if you just objectively look at what has happened, that is what is happening. And so what it makes me wonder is recognizing that that is the trajectory. What, what areas are you looking to, to be involved in? What areas are you looking to to support in the most over the next, say, 10, 20 years? What excites you the most? Um, I, I think just what excites me is just this idea that, um, that children and books will continue to be the most significant and important part of, of a classroom. Like I, I can't, I can't, and, and, and that will that will look different in 10 years, I'm sure. Um, but 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 children in reading, that that I would just like to be part of that journey, continue to be part of that journey and and to 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 help children develop not only the skills of reading but the passion for reading. And I think that you can teach reading with no passion and no no party, and that that's what I think prevents children from being lifelong readers is when it becomes the chore for the score. So I want it to be, you know, I just want to get that message out and be part of part of that journey. Well, and if well, I that- if I can have that small impact on on teachers it's it's a gift to me it's not it's a gift to me like I that's that that's what I would love to be able to do I mean when I think about that impact it's not just you know you're having that immediate impact on teachers 
and then on students and then on parents as their relationship changes with students and then on society as the students become passionate lifelong learners and readers who become voters who become who, who are making decisions who are you know they've been exposed to this idea of recycling and so now they've changed their behavior there the the work that you're doing is so deeply inspiring and i think the thing that's really beautiful about it is that it's it's sustainable it's long lasting the 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 teachers who you teach today are inspiring students you know 10 15 20 years from now it, it's it's remarkable and thank you for inviting all of us to the party really appreciate it thanks thanks for coming to the party Thank you for listening to Impact in the 21st Century, and thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. We're so grateful for your sponsorship, which helps Simbi Foundation further our mission to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. So how do we do this? We collaborate with the UN and incredible partner communities to build solar power classrooms called Bright Boxes. You can learn more at simbifoundation.org. If you enjoyed this episode and think a family member, friend, or coworker would also enjoy it, feel free to share. A personal message goes a long way and will allow us to invite more awesome guests to join for the positive impact conversation. But the conversation doesn't end here, and I'd love for you to join the discussion. So please subscribe, leave a review, comment, and let us know what you thought of today's episode, or if there's anyone else you'd like to see on the podcast. In the meantime, wishing you a wonderful, impactful day ahead, and be sure to join for the next episode.